come to the beginning of chapter 5 now and this is called to be or not to be is that the question uh, so this uh, title comes from uh, a quotation from Shakespeare's play Hamlet and this is very well known in the English speaking world so uh, uh, <clears throat> and I guess it's hopefully made it beyond the bounds of, of the UK into other um, uh, other languages where it's a familiar phrase it's one of the most uh, well-known passages from the uh, the tragedy of Hamlet Prince of Denmark and it's uh, comes when he's talking to himself it's a soliloquy he's just speaking to himself and he's trying to decide whether to do something or not he's discovered that his uh, his father or he strongly suspects his father has been killed by his uncle who then has married his mother and um, uh, taken over the throne and uh, so on and he's trying to decide what to do so when he says to be or not to be uh, the, the whole passage goes uh, to be or not to be that is the question whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them that's Shakespearean English, so you might well adjust your hearing aids. Yes. <laughs> so what it means is, um, should I be passive and do nothing to um, uh, to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, just to sit there and just let life happen, and to meet uh, meet the world by being numb and just switching off to, to, as it were, do nothing, or to take arms against a sea of troubles? and by opposing end them, or to get up and, and contend against the way things are. So it's a bigger spiritual question than just Hamlet wondering what to do about his mother being um, deprived of her husband and then being married to his uh, evil uncle and so forth. But it's rather a, uh, what's the way to handle the way things are, to just uh, to, switch, uh, to, not con to switch off and to, to be passive or to contend against the way things are. So to, um, and so that I would suggest, which is a bit of an aside, but uh, rather than to, um, uh, to be, uh, uh, say, passive in the face of the way things are, or to be uh, contending against the way things are, both of those are the, representing the two extremes, and the, the middle way is to work with the way things are. And so... Um, the uh, the that's a bit of a preface, <laughs> but the the reason why we use this uh, phrase in the title of this this chapter is it's talking about the Buddha's teachings on anatta, not self, and it sort of echoes these age-old questions about what is the nature of of uh, 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 what we are as a human being and uh, as. Uh, as a self, does the self exist? Does it not exist? What is the self, or what is the soul, or what am I? What are, what are we as human beings? What is uh, what is the nature of this this life? This <laughs> the um, uh, the aim of this chapter is to then explore the Buddha's teachings about not-self and to clarify uh, some of the um, 
the uh, teachings about that and to particularly to help us to to use those teachings to uh, to not just to create the perfect philosophical position that we can then grasp but rather use these teachings to help understand why it is that uh, the mind creates dukkha and w- what the um, the buddha's take on this uh, quality of of atta or, or self uh, is and uh, he, it seems as though he was quite unique in his approach to this uh, this issue this question in terms of of other spiritual teachers of his time and, and in through the subsequent centuries and uh, and, and also the um, the title echoes this sense of different philosophical positions of saying the soul exists or the soul doesn't exist or the self exists the self doesn't exist and the um, the kind of position taking that happens in the the philosophical world and in the, even the Buddhist time and up till today and uh, in a, and, and then suggesting that one can step back from that to ask is that the question <laughs> are we making the 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 issue uh, the uh, the picture of things too narrow by uh, asking that does the self exist does the self not exist and such like so then to begin whereas the previous chapter largely looked at the relationship between objects of experience i.e. object-object conditionality <coughs> object-object conditionality we will now investigate that other dimension of the experiential realm the relationship between objects and their subject subject-object conditionality so you remember that was right at the beginning uh, uh, I said that we'd look at these two different aspects of conditionality first one being the relation of objects to each other and then the second aspect subject-object relationships one of the most subtle and invaluable aspects of the Buddha's teaching is the way in which it illuminates the conundrum the puzzle of selfhood together with its treatment of the age-old questions of being and non-being existence and non-existence the main thrust of the Buddha's insight into this area is hinted at by the title of this chapter that is to say much of the confusion and strife in the conceptual realm over these issues seems to have come from asking the wrong questions questions based on axioms and unconscious presuppositions which do not accord with reality so if you ask a question that's that's uh, that doesn't have a basis in reality like we'll, we'll come to later on when the Buddha says to Vajagota where did the fire go north south east or west he says you're asking a question based on a reality that does not exist the fire didn't go in any direction so that the way you're, there isn't a, a, a meaningful answer to that question if you say where did the fire go so much of the confusion and strife in the conceptual realm over these issues seems to have come from asking the wrong questions questions based on axioms and unconscious presuppositions of fixed ideas that we already assume to be true which do not accord with reality if one adopts the worldview embedded in the wording of such biased questions then no response which accords with reality can come forth and then the first passage in this chapter and by the way this is one of the longest chapters in the whole book so this goes on for a while not necessarily today but uh, it'll take a few days to work through it all 
So this is a passage from Venerable Nyanati Loka's wonderful Buddhist dictionary, and this is his uh, entry on Anatta. Uh, One cannot too often and too emphatically stress the fact that not only for the actual realization of the goal of Nibbana, but also for a theoretical understanding of it, it is an indispensable preliminary condition to grasp fully the truth of anatta, the egolessness and insubstantiality of all forms of existence. Without such an understanding, one will necessarily misconceive Nibbana according to one's either materialistic or metaphysical leanings, either as an annihilation of an ego or as an eternal state of existence into which an ego or self enters with or which, or, sorry, uh, or in it, uh, as an eternal state of existence into which an ego or self enters, or with which it merges. Actually, that's, that's from his entry on Nibbana, uh, uh, it's page 106 in the dictionary. But, uh, <coughs> so, this is um, uh, a very helpful reflection to begin with from Venerable Nyanati Loka that, that uh, to really understand Nibbana. And uh, and what that what that word is referring to, and how it can be realised, it's it's very very closely related to the teachings on on anatta. And um, the uh, that being the and as we come across with many many of the readings in this chapter, um, that and as we were talking, I was quoting the other day from the Panchataya Sutta that you know I am at peace, I have realised nibbana, I am without clinging. That that the that very um, I. Iness, the the I in that uh, set of declarations indicates that nibbana hasn't actually been realised because there's this I that's claiming to have realised it and to to be at peace and so on. So I think this is a very helpful point uh, in uh, Venerable Nyanati Loka's um, dictionary that uh, when talking about nibbana, that uh, you that you you necessarily need to develop a a, a, a deep understanding or a, feel for what the, the teachings on anatta are pointing to uh, in order to, to get a full sense of what, uh, of what Nibbāna is. The idea of, I can realize Nibbāna, or uh, <coughs> you know, my, uh, myself will, will, uh, will merge with Nibbāna, uh, these kind of ideas, or the, the, um, uh, you have uh, the final words of uh, Sir Edwin Arnold's Light of Asia, the dewdrop slips into the shining sea, like this sort of imagery of of um, the the self entering and merging with with uh, with nibbana, um, that those images you find them around and about, but it uh, it creates uh, mistaken pictures, or the, those kind of images often don't reflect exactly what the Buddha was was teaching. Central to the path of insight into this area is a recognition that the sense of self is a conditioned natural quality neither eternally self-existent nor essentially non-existent. It arises and passes away dependent on causes and conditions. So um, that's in a way the first point, is that that feeling of I is just another uh, pattern of experience, just like the, the sensation of the, the touch, uh, um, uh, a sensation of touching my fingers, my hand, or the weight of this book, or the, the, the texture of the cover. It's a, 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 a set of perceptions. The feeling of I is also just a, a set of perceptions. It's not uh, anything 
absolute, uh, or, uh, but it is also just as much a part of nature as a, a sensation in our in our hands or the the, the sound of these words uh, being heard by the uh, being received by the ear and interpreted by the mind. It's just a a, a natural um, set of, uh, of conditions that arise, do their thing, and pass away. So that in a, in a very direct and uh, easy way to reflect on that, the feeling of self is not self. The feeling of I is not is not I. It's just a feeling <laughs> that is experienced uh, in the mind. But it's uh, it, the the I am feeling is just a feeling that it's not. It is not who and what we are. So then, the next passage is a quote from the uh, again from the Datu Vibhanga Sutta, Majjhima uh, Nikaya Sutta 140. This is the Pukusati meeting the Buddha in the in the potter's shed uh, sutta. <coughs> and uh, this is the, the Buddha speaking to Pukusati. Um, so this is towards the end of his, his discourse to him. Bhikkhu, I am is a conceiving. I am this is a conceiving. I shall be is a conceiving. I shall not be is a conceiving. I shall be possessed of form is a conceiving. I shall be formless, is a conceiving. I shall be percipient, is a conceiving. I shall be non-percipient, is a conceiving. All of those uh, 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 particular positions or judgments or, or the forming of an idea of, of, of self uh, is both, uh, some of them are related to this present experience, some of them are related to uh, views about what happens uh, to the uh, uh, to the being after the death of the of the body, when he says, "I shall not be," it's like the um, <coughs> after the body dies, then th- there will be a, a annihilation of this existent being, uh, or I shall be possessed of form. I shall arise with a, in a realm where there is form, or I shall ar- arise in a realm where that is formless. Or percipient means being able to know, being able to to experience, or being not. A, uh, being non-percipient means being not able to experience uh, in a in some kind of future life. So then he continues, conceiving is a disease. Conceiving is a tumor, like a cancer. Conceiving is a barb, like a a, a hook, like a fish hook, a kind of a, a um, or like a, um, a thorn on a rose, a rose bush. By overcoming all conceivings, bhikkhu, one is called a sage at peace. And the sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die. They are not shaken and are not agitated. For there is nothing present in them by which they might be born. Not being born, how could they age? Not aging, how could they die? Not dying, how could they be shaken? Not being shaken, why should they be agitated? This is a very, uh, uh, very direct and helpful teaching on anatta. Yeah, I am is a conceiving. The ahang uh, 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 asmi I, uh, means I am. Asmi means uh, I am. Uh, the word for conceiving in Pali is manyati. Ma- uh, mana is conceit. Manyati is to uh, to conceive. So, and uh, conceiving. Um, Means something that's brought into into being. It's something that's been sort of put together. So uh, a concept, an idea, is a thing that has been conceived. 
Uh, or when we say a child is born, we say a child is conceived by a mother and father. It's a, a conceiving. So he's saying the I am uh, is directly uh, counteracting the idea that the uh, Atman is some sort of eternal individual essence. But rather, Ahang, the Atta, is a conceiving. It's not eternal. It's not something that is um, uh, unique and, and um, uh, say, um, absolute, but rather it's a conceiving, it's something that, that comes into being. Now this points to, and then this little phrase, conceiving is a disease, conceiving is a tumour, conceiving is a barb. So that's pretty punchy kind of language, like, rather than um, the, uh, uh, the kind of um, life-affirming, um, uh, say, uh, philosophies that are, are very uh, common, popular today, where there's a sort of uh, um, uh, an automatic thought that you know whatever's come into being, whatever is, is formed, whatever is part of nature is, is good and is wonderful, is a one, is a great thing. Um, then <coughs> the the Buddha is in in this respect is counteracting that um, uh, what they call the sasatavada or eternalist or or a um, life affirming uh, position. And uh, uses this very uh, sort of strong language. Conceiving is a disease. It's a, like a tumor, like a cancerous tumor. It's like a, a thorn or a, a, a yeah, fish hook. So, this is in terms of, of practice, in terms of, of meditation. Um, when uh, when you notice the mind, uh, say, um, going out and grasping a sound or a feeling that is, is born into that pain in your knee or is born into the sound of somebody um, making a, a noise as they, they come through the door. That they, <coughs> the, it go, it's born into a particular thought or a, a worry. Uh, it's, uh, a, a fantasy or an in mental image arises and the mind jumps on it and feels you know, resentment or anger or desire. So that that... that Leaping out, the mind sort of going out and grabbing and getting born into a thought or a feeling or a I want or I can't stand or yeah, how dare you. That that's a conceiving, uh, and then particularly the I want, I can't stand, I got to have, I am, I should be. All of those eyes and me's and minds, those are the conceivings. And so when when he uses this kind of language, saying conceiving is a disease, it's. Uh, is pointing to the fact that at that moment the mind has been born into something that is impermanent. It's sort of it's grabbed hold of this impermanent, unsatisfactory thing, and identifying with it is trying to find satisfaction in that that thing, in that thought, in that that aversion, that that worry. So, it's it's a conceiving in so f- and it's and it's a, a disease in so far as it's not the realization of dhamma. It's like the mind has has sort of lost the. Uh, realization of its own fundamental nature, and it's <laughs> it's been born into this sort of a secondary nature, or like that example, the, the language from the um, northern Buddhist uh, teachings, like mistaking a thief for your own your own child. That you you have been raising a a, a thief, a, an imposter in your house, rather than your own child. So it's strong kind of it's strong language, but it has a kind of purpose to, to get our attention. And that, and the uh, the and pointing out that any I am, if it's believed in, is painful. 
It's a dis- it's a dis-ease. It's it's not ease. It's a dis-ease. It's a it's a a, a, a disturbance because it's uh, the mind losing its vision of being dhamma, as it were. Uh, yes. Anjan, um, when the Buddha enlightened and there's a wanderer, the first person that saw. Upaka, yeah. And um, he questioned Buddha something, and Buddha said, "I am blah 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 something." <laughs> <laughs> he said, okay. "I I am the all awakened one. Yeah. <coughs> I have no teacher." So he is using I am. Mm-hmm. Isn't is it that we have to look into the content that he is not clinging to it, or is just a conventional way that he put it? I am the the one who I'm I'm the one who is the teacher, but he didn't cling to it. That's right. Yes. So he and he uh, when he was questioned on that another time, uh, the somebody said. Uh, I haven't got the reference memorized, but uh, when somebody said, um, "You say all dhammas are not self, but you you talk about he and she and they, and uh, you you use all these personal pronouns," and the Buddha says uh, that the Tathagata uses the conventions of ordinary speech, uh, but what's um, uh, called vohara he uses the the ordinary conventions of speech, but uses them without delusion about uh, the nature of. Uh, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the self, so it's you know he he will use those conventions. He would say um, she just asked a question. So, but when he uh, when he uses a, a personal pronoun, um, and then <coughs> uh, and I think actually it's interesting in uh, in that exchange with Upaka, he doesn't, if I remember correctly, he doesn't use the word the Tathagata yet he has I think he, he still uses I and I think he after that exchange he stopped using that mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to look it up but I think that's the case you're, you're about to ask something else yes. so the, the, the point is not about the thing that the word that we use is that inside we are not clinging to it exactly mm-hmm. so you can't ha- you can't uh, uh, if you try to go around saying you can't call me Tejasar because I'm not that's not what I am <laughs> it's like the nun the nun formerly referred to as Sister Tejasar like trying to not be a person it's not the wording but um, it's uh, it's the understanding that's the important thing like I've often mentioned this fellow who used to come to the uh, Buddhist Society Summer School when it was at, at Haile in, in Hoddesdon. And he would always call himself It. <laughs> so it's, it's hungry, it would like to have a cup of tea and a slice of cake. <laughs> so he would never say I or me or mine. And so he was very into the idea of anatta, but he was so, it was like, he was kind of obnoxious with it. Uh, I think uh, his uh, his wife was an extremely patient person. <laughs> I was very impressed with her. I mean, he was. Well, I don't want to make fun of him, but I do because <laughs> it was kind of funny. It was funny. But uh, it was uh, yeah. He was very sincere and trying to revere the the principle of not self. But it, it ended up being more like you know that. 
it, it never uses the personal pro the personal pronoun. <laughs> you know. but so it becomes a, this this uh, this expression of, of selfhood, but not but uh, not using the word I or me, but it becomes. Uh, the the feeling of of Atta gathers around it anyway. But the word that we use sometimes it does have the in, impact. Uh, in Chinese, we when sometimes we we talk to people, we use we say I'm Tejasa, and then uh, I don't use I I use Tejasa blah blah blah, mm -hmm. and it, it kind of not connected to be myself. It's kind of like there's a separation. You are not very related to bring the I into yourself. So they do the same in, in Thai language. It's the same. They, in Thai language, they use a similar. They they often don't use the, the word for the um, personal pronoun like pom or chan. They just they'll they'll use their own name, or they'll um, or some. If talking to a monastic, they'll say looks it. Yeah. Uh, uh, looks at you, cow. Like the the disciple is hungry, you know, or, uh, uh, or they 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 uh, de-emphasize that. And for monastics, you're never supposed to use the word uh, the the personal pronoun in talking to a layperson. So as a monk, I would never say pom pom cho, cow neo. Uh, you'd never say. You rather you say atma atama. So you, you use the word the, the self, atama, is the Thai convention for a, a monastic talking to lay people. Atamaja bai kung I will go to Bangkok. I would never say pompai pompai kung They would sort of, you shouldn't say that, Ajahn. But it's it's a so that there's a a, a buffering, a kind of a, a way that people don't use that. I think because of the Buddhist influence in the language. They, they don't use the language in the in the way that casually affirms uh, identity. Ajahn Jitapala, you had something. A moment ago, you were going, you were on the brink of asking something. Mm -hmm. I, I I forgot what I wanted to ask. <laughs> I could now dig for it. That's all right. Okay. We can let it go. So, so let's do. Well, I, I, so what? Uh, <laughs> what I, I, I wanted. To <laughs> what the Jitapala wanted to say. Uh, in a way, I realized that we have to relearn how to how we speak about it, or how we have how we relate to what we say. I mean, I think even more important than the words is how we relate to them. And as I understood from from the passages about them. Uh, early times after the Buddha's enlightenment, he was contemplating a lot how he could express mm -hmm. things skillfully because the, the first discourse mm -hmm. wasn't going down well. So, you know, how, how to, to speak about the Dhamma. And uh, it's, it's, I find it very interesting when we talk about our, you know, no, I don't want it, I don't like it, I need it. Uh, it would be good to have it, it would be helpful to have it. So all, all these things we have to relearn uh, how to express ourselves. Mm -hmm. It is interesting go, going to Thailand, I mean I don't speak Chinese, but certainly going into Thailand, I don't know how it is in, in Sinhalese, but the, 
that they this the 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 style of shedding the personal pronouns when so you do, we just say um um uh, you just say uh that this is painful rather than uh i'm in pain or um i'm planning to go to to ubon you say you'd say um uh, planning planning to go to ubon kitwaje by ubon uh, i'm thinking of going to ubon but you wouldn't say i am where in english it's, you you might in very casual way say thinking of going to Ubon, but it, it it's a, it uh, it feels like it's a bit missing. But uh, it was very noticeable as I started to learn Thai language that uh, they they uh, did a lot. You know, a lot of the time, you're not using personal pronouns at all, and it does give this this feel of uh, of non impersonality to it. In in Sinhalese, do you, do you use that? You're trying to think now. <laughs> What's the word for I in Sinhala? Well, I'm just thinking because we have the colloquial Sinhala and the <laughs> good Sinhala. There is a word for I, but uh, you can omit it, I think. You can omit it and say going. Yeah. Is, that, is that the common usage, is to leave it out? Sorry to put you on the spot. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no other Sinhalese people. Well, not to worry, but uh, it, I, I was, it was striking to me as I began to learn Thai. And I thought, oh, that's kind of good. It that's, that's, uh, gives a helpful tone. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, and also it's to the point where if you do say uh, Atama, if you're talking to a layperson, or Pom, pom Chop, it sounds a bit like a bit of an intrusion, like just like he says about the I am. It's a, it's a tumor. It's a disease. It's a sort of a, a disturbance. Like there's a little sort of oh, it's a, uh, a there's a ripple there, which is it's good to notice. Which English maybe in a hundred years, or English and German and French will be shedding their pronouns. But but when you say it's painful, I don't think we use the word. Uh, you point to the spot and say. It's painful rather than I'm in pain. Uh-huh. I think that's much I can remember. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, to continue. There is some controversy as to the definitive meaning in this and related passages of such phrases as, quote, the sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die, unquote. Those who uphold the view that the teachings on dependent origination refer only to the passage of events over three lifetimes, past, present and future, assert that this means birth, etc., in future lives. This is the view tentatively expressed by Acharya Buddhaghosa in the Visuddhimagga, the principal commentarial compendium on the Theravada teachings. Although it should also be said that he does allow for dependent origination in one lifetime as well. Those who feel that the dependent origination teachings can refer to both the microcosm of the present moment and present life and the macrocosm of the span of several lives tend to interpret such phrases as, as meaning a psychological birth rather than an obstetric one, like a physical birth. I.e., no sense of self is born. This outlook on things, that the pattern of dependent origination follows 
the laws of scale invariance, and thus pertains over a variety of orders of magnitude, is borne out by a number of key statements of the Buddha. So this means that uh, that um, this phrase phraseology of saying um, someone's not born does not age does does not die. Um, that is saying doesn't just mean physically being born and aging and dying, but um, psychologically being born into that feeling in the knee or that that sound that we hear or that uh, that memory or that that idea. And this term scale invariance is a useful one. That means having the same pattern at different at different levels of experience. So, say for example, a tree, uh, the pattern of a tree with a trunk and going out into branches. Uh, uh, is um, the same kind of pattern as you have in a, a nerve ending. So a nerve ending is called a dendrite, from the Greek word dendron, I think, which is a, a word for a tree. And then also if you look at a satellite picture of a, a, a river delta, as a river comes down and fans out before it merges to the sea, then you get the same kind of pattern uh, yeah, there as, um, as you have as a tree or as a, having as a, a nerve ending. So you have the same pattern existing on different scales, or, or like a, a whirlpool, like the, the water going down the plug hole in the sink swirls around in a little, in a, in a spiral, or you have the clouds from a cyclone or a, a um, typhoon sort of swirling around over uh, several hundred miles, or you have a whole galaxy, like our galaxy, the, the Milky Way, it's like this big sort of spiral... Um, swirling pattern, the same pattern you, you find over different levels. So this is the same, I would suggest, with dependent, dependent origination, that it, the same patterns apply on the, the microscopic and the medium and the macroscopic levels. The next passage is uh, the um, uh, something of the sort of motto of Amravati. This was when Am Amravati first opened. This was one of the themes of uh, many, many Dhamma talks of Lumpur Sumato. So this is Dhammapada, verse number 21. Heedfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The heedful never die. The heedless are as if dead already. So when, he's, when the Buddha says the heedful never die, it doesn't mean that these bodies keep breathing forever. Uh, that uh, is uh, should be obvious, <laughs> since his own uh, his own life uh, came to an end. His his body and the body of uh, Gautama Buddha, Anavisaka uh, Puja, uh, two thousand five hundred sixty years ago, stopped breathing. And uh, so, when he says the heedful never die, it's not talking about a, a physical death, but rather a psychological death. Uh, also, this. Um, one of the, I think, the second of Lumpur Sumedho's uh, collections of teachings was called "Mindfulness: The Path to the Deathless," and that was printed to coincide with the opening of Amravati back in 1985. As far as the explorations of this book, an interpretation which allows both present moment and three lifetimes models seems both valid and useful, particularly in reference to the investigation of self slash not self and being slash non-being. It should be noted from the first that the terms conceives, manyati, and conceit, mana, have a broader meaning in Pali than their usual English counterparts. I was mentioning this the other day about the, the word for conceit. For example, 
From the Buddhist point of view, conception, quote-unquote, can be used to express the view that I don't exist, unquote. And perversely, to common English usage, one can hold the conceit that I am the worst person in the world. In the Pali scriptures, there are numerous places where such qualities are described. For example, and this first one is from the Anguttara Nikaya Book of the Sixes, and the second one is from the uh, the um, Kandavaga, the Connected Discourses on the Five Khandas. So this is, first one is from the Book of the Sixes. The equality conceit, mana, the inferiority conceit, o mana, and the superiority conceit, atti mana. This threefold conceit should be overcome. That one who has overcome this threefold conceit, through the full penetration of conceit, is said to have put an end to suffering. So that's uh, thinking that you're equal, thinking that you're better, or thinking that you're worse than. That's defining those there. And then from the um, Kandavaga, those samanas and brahmins who, relying on the impermanent, unsatisfying and transitory nature of material form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness, conceive that I am better or I am equal or I am worse. All these imagine thus through not understanding reality. So as I was mentioning before, in English the word to be conceited means uh, to think you're better than other people. Um, and uh, in Pali it has a much broader meaning So, as, uh, as I was saying that uh, I'm the worst person in the world is still being conceited in, in the Pali use of the, the term uh, ma, uh, mana, conceit. Does that make sense? Actually, I, yes. I thought it meant any sense of I am at all, not just better words. Does it not, not oh, a, a, any, uh, yeah, I mean, a, anywhere on that scale. I mean, it's just a, that's just a shorthand. Because it can be the conceit that you're the same as. But not even referring to other people, just the sense of an I. Yeah, that's every, every I am. Yeah. yeah. But, <coughs> but he, um, he's, he speaks, in this particular instance, he's talking about the equality conceit, the inferiority conceit, and the superiority conceit. This threefold conceit should be overcome. Um, there's also another passage in the Megya Sutta, where the Buddha's talking to this uh, monk, Megya, who went off to practice meditation by himself and got into all kinds of tangles. And in the advice that the Buddha gives to Megya, he says um, uh, at the end of a succession of different um, practices he's, he's explaining, he says... Um, uh, contemplate the the truth of uh, of anicca, the impermanence, to break through the conceit of I am, asmi mana, and he said, and to one who has broken through the the conceit I am through asmi mana, that is uh, uh, that is the experience of nibbana here and now, or that is nibbana here and now, so that um, that uh, in that particular teaching he's saying any kind of I am. Uh, that uh, conceiving uh, of asmi mana that once that is, is dropped then the, the, the experience of that being let go of or being seen through is that, uh, the experience of nibbana. When the Buddha uses the, the expression uh, being the conceiver, the perceiver of the word 
I, I was, I'm always kind of um, trying to find out what, what that means, because it, in that sense it doesn't sound like conceit. So uh, how is being the conceiver, the perceiver of the world, what is the meaning of conceiver there? Well, that's, that's what the, the Buddha says, that's the world. That, yeah. that whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of yeah. the world, that is called the world. Yeah. So, and then, so then that's in the context of him saying this is the arising, this is the, the world, the arising of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. Mm -hmm. So in that, he's using loka, loka as a sort of synonym for dukkha, mm -hmm. the world as a synonym for suffering. Mm -hmm. So that the 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 degree to which the the mind buys into is born into and buys into seeing hearing smelling tasting touching that that is the um, how you know the attachment to the way that the world is created so it's it's a clear difference to perceiver so the conceiver of the world is really also then the making the world real saying yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, it, it, uh, it is that, that it's, you like are. Yeah. Okay. it's hard I, I sometimes try to find a German word for it and I, I couldn't quite oh there must be a nice long one <laughs> <laughs> they have, I, I, Germans got a fantastic I, vocabulary of <laughs> long and complicated words <laughs> We have some German in this chapter later on. <clears throat> a similar teaching is given by the Buddha to a female devata, quote, of stunning beauty, unquote, who encountered and propositioned the young bhikkhu Samidhi just after he emerged from the hot springs at Rajagaha and was drying himself on the bank. He declines her invitation and tries to explain why he's not interested in sensual pleasure. When she fails to understand his reasoning, he encourages her to go and ask the Buddha. She, very poignantly, responds that as a humble and junior female devata, it isn't easy for those such as she to approach the Buddha as he's often surrounded by other more powerful and influential celestial beings. The commentary adds that the devarajas usually have a retinue of one billion or ten billion other devas. So when one of these, these sort of big powerful devas goes to see the Buddha, they take a billion followers along with them. So... It's got a little, woman, it's a little female devata sort of <laughs> sitting way at the back. And like, There's no way the Buddha's ever going to see me. So people have been left out for a long time. So. Uh, kindly, Samidi. So um, he didn't take uh, offence at uh, this devata trying to proposition him, but rather saw that she needed help and wanted to be of uh, assistance in. Uh, um, giving her spiritual guidance. So kindly, Samidhi goes to see the Buddha and effectively arranges an audience for the Devatar. When she again fails to grasp the meaning of the teaching, the Buddha expands on what he has said with One who conceives I am equal, better or worse, might on that account engage in disputes. But one not shaken in the three discriminations does not think I am equal or better. Still, our keen protagonist, the, uh, the, the uh, Devatar, 
cannot fathom the meaning and so asks the Buddha to explain in more detail. He responds, He abandoned reckoning, did not assume conceit. He cut off craving here for name and form. Though devas and humans search for him, here and beyond, in the heavens and in all abodes, they do not find the one whose knots are cut, the one untroubled, free of longing. If you understand, spirit, speak up. The commentary tells us that the devata, having at last understood, realized stream entry. She then uttered the following words to express her realization of the implications of the insight that had opened up for her. So this is not so much explaining what the insight was, but um, what sort of um, had change of perspective that has come the in, uh, following along the, that insight into um, conceit having arisen. Then she says, I understand in detail, Venerable Sir, the meaning of what was say, the meaning of what was stated in brief by the Blessed One. Thus, one should do no evil in all the world, not by speech, mind, or body. Having abandoned sense pleasures, mindful and clearly comprehending, one should not pursue a course that is painful and harmful. Well, that passage comes in the first section of the connected discourses, the um, Deva Sangyuta. Um, and uh, <coughs> the, uh, the the passage, the second passage of the Buddha, where he says um, he abandoned reckoning, so <coughs> did not assume conceit. So this is talking about the mind that that's let lets go of making judgments. This word reckoning means to to measure things. To um, and there's other suttas where the the um, the Buddha talks about. Um, uh, his own nature, the Tathagata, is uh, uh, is liberated from being reckoned in terms of the five khandhas. You can't measure the Buddha in terms of the five khandhas. So that the the awake mind has abandoned reckoning. It's not measuring things against each other. Did not assume conceit. Does not create the I am uh, feeling. He cut off craving here for name and form, for body and mind. Though devas and humans search for him here and beyond, in the heavens and all abodes, they do not find the one whose knots are cut, the one untroubled, free of longing. If you understand, spirit, speak up. So this uh, this uh, expression of um, uh, searching for some being and not being able to find them, that's a, a, an image that comes up in a few different places. So we'll come across that more in the later chapter called The Unapprehendability of the Enlightened. And... So I'll read these again later, but just um, so that uh, you have a sense that <clears throat> these are a couple of passages where the Buddha speaks for, about himself. First of all, this is an, an exchange of the Buddha with Vachagota, a faithful wanderer who's uh, always, uh, often coming to ask the Buddha questions. And this is that same Vachagota and fire where the Buddha's talked about where, uh, where did the fire go, north, south, east or west. So too, Vacha, the Tathagata has abandoned that material form by which one describing the Tathagata might describe him. He has cut it all off at the root, made it like a palm stump, done away with it so that it is no longer subject to future arising. The Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form, feeling, perception, mental formations and consciousness, Vacha. He is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, 
like the ocean. And the other passage is from the, um, the uh, simile of the snake, Majima Nikaya, middle-length discourses, Sutta number 22. Bhikkhus, when the gods with Indra and Brahma and with Pujapati seek a bhikkhu who is thus liberated in mind, they do not find anything of which they could say, the consciousness of one thus gone is supported by this. Why is that? One thus gone, I say, is untraceable here and now. So thus gone in that respect is Tathag he uses Tathagata to refer to uh, uh, any enlightened being. So this kind of untraceable and that whole chapter, the unapp unapprehendability of the enlightened, is it picks out various passages referring to this um, unfindability that when they when they look for that being they can't find them. In uh, one of uh, uh, Ajahn Punadamo. Um, one of his um, uh, blog uh, articles. He uh, uh, lives in this little. He's a Canadian monk. Lives in this little hermitage in uh, uh, Ontario, Arrow River Forest Hermitage, way out in the in the uh, the boonies. That uh, <coughs> it's the kind of monastery where it's like the, he complains about those pesky bears, that <laughs> <laughs> pesky bears that keep coming along and harassing the meditators in their cooties. And the, that the the uh, he was having and a couple of years ago he was having a lot of trouble with all these sort of bears coming and wandering through and and giving people a bad time when they're trying to practice walking meditation and, <laughs> kind of scratching at their their kind of pounding away at the windows of their cooties and such like <laughs> so he was talking to a local forest ranger um when he was on uh, he was in arrow river and uh, he said that <clears throat> And he was complaining about how the, 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 it was uh, being a real headache with the, the bears recently. And the, the ranger says, so where do you live? And he says, oh, out on rural route, about 50 miles down rural route 7. And said, oh, really? Rural route 7, huh? And he kind of starts looking at the floor and says, actually, that's where we take the delinquent bears. <laughs> well, yeah, all over this region of Ontario, when people have trouble with bears, we, we put them in the wagon and that's where, that's where we dropped them because we, we kind of thought that was out at the end of the world. So sorry about that. <laughs> so Ajahn Puna thought that was pretty funny. So anyway, he, he's a very creative writer and um, in, uh, he did this whole succession of, of, um, of, uh, of little essays called Letters from Mara. And it was like it was a it was a sort of a, a, a takeoff from um, uh, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, uh, the, the Screw Tape Letters, which is the letters between a, a devil and his of his protege nephew, who sort of sent out into the world to cause trouble. So it's um, Mara sending out messages to uh, his sort of various different um, uh, uh, disciples and uh, and students around the world, and in one of his. Um, Letters from Mara passages. He has Mara sitting at his uh, <coughs> his uh, computer, you know, keeping track. And there's this this old nun sitting in a hut in a in a kuti in the forest, and and uh, he's been sending out various different um, sort of tricks and traps to try and get her confused. And then uh, and then and then finally uh, she she passes away, and uh, he's not sure whether you know she's still uh, within his realm or not. And 
and and and then in his this little passage, he just uh, he describes that this intense frustration and anguish in Mara's heart when he when he kind of keeps hitting the the key and like being not found, like an, an error message, being not found. Like where is she? Where's she gone? She must be in some realm. Where's she gone? She's got to be somewhere. You know, where's that being? And he's kind of keeps hunting through all the all the realms and being like file not found you get the error also 404 message file not found you get the being not found error message from Mara so that's an interesting way of representing it maybe Mara's looking right now so to carry on with this uh, conceit um, the Nidesa which is a, a um, a more sort of systematic arrangement of, of uh, teachings. Uh, the Nidesa codifies the three modes mentioned in these suttas into a, a final comprehensive, comprehensive matrix of the nine types of conceit. If you are superior and you think, I'm superior. If you are superior and you think, I'm equal. If you're superior and you think, I'm inferior. So it's the first three kinds of conceit. If you're equal and you think I'm superior, if you're equal and you think I'm equal, if you're equal and you think I'm inferior, that's the second three. If you're inferior and you think I'm superior, if you're inferior and you think I'm equal, if you're inferior and if you think I'm inferior, those are all different kinds of conceit. Those that's a ninefold conceit. So. Uh, that uh, any of those come under the, the heading of, of uh, uh, conceitedness. All of these are conceits based on wrong view and will necessarily result in dukkha. To the Western rationalist mind, it is particularly worthy of note that even those judgments that are right, quote-unquote, conventionally speaking, are wrong, quote-unquote, in terms of Dhamma. Ergo, if it has I am in it, meditator, beware. So that even the, the ones, that if, you're, if you're equal and you think I'm equal, that's still a conceit. Yeah, the, if you are inferior and you think I'm inferior, it's, it's still a conceit. So that the, um, the judgments are right, they're correct, like you think you're inferior and you are inferior, the I amness that gets wrapped around that and woven into it makes it, uh, uh, so as Ajahn Chah put it, right in fact but wrong in Dhamma. There is a collection of phrases which is used over and over again in the teachings to encapsulate the key modalities of such conceit. These phrases first appeared very early on in the Buddha's teaching career when he expounded the Anattalakana Sutta, the second discourse, to the group of five wanderers who were his first disciples. The words in question come in his analysis of the five khandhas in the light of the three characteristics of existence, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. What do you think, Bhikkhus? This is, so this is from the um, Anathalakana Sutta, very familiar to all of us, we chant it regularly here. What do you think, Bhikkhus? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Venerable Sir. Is that which is impermanent satisfying or unsatisfying? Unsatisfying, Venerable Sir. Is that which is impermanent unsatisfying and subject to change fit to be regarded thus this is mine etang mama this is what i am eso hamasmi this is myself eso me ata no venerable sir 
These phrases are not solely used in relation to the five khandhas. For example, Venerable Sariputta implies them together with an examination of the six senses in his questioning of the bhikkhu Chana, shortly before the latter's death. Friend Chana, do you regard the eye, eye consciousness, and things cognizable by the mind through eye consciousness thus? This is mine. This is what I am. This is myself. So too with the ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. These three phrases quoted uh, in that uh, passage, etang mama eso hamasmi eso me ata, they are known as the gaha, the obsessions. And the word gaha is derived from the image of being seized and carried off by a demon. And they correspond to three principal defilements tanha, craving, mana, conceit, and ditti, views, craving, conceit, and views. The first is built around the delusion of ownership. So, etang mama, that's mine, that's the, the tanha. Uh, the first is built around the delusion of ownership and possessiveness. The second, mana, around the subtle conceit of identity. And the third, uh, ditti, around the con uh, concretization of the body and personality. Like sakaya ditti, the, the personality view, I am the body, I am the personality. The gaha are also closely allied with what are known as the papancha dhammas, tanha, ditti and mana, the qualities are same, only the ordering is different. Although, having said that, it may be said that the ditti in papancha is of a more abstract nature rather than directly about one's self, as in, my view is that the universe is eternal, etc. Taking a stand on that view, one gets puffed up and conceives, or self gets invested at that point. This is seen in the shorter discourse on the lion's roar, which is the 11th discourse in the Majima Nikaya where grasping at views of annihilationism, eternalism, etc., precedes the full-blown notion of self as an object of clinging. Either way, these qualities are the root causes of conceptual proliferation, papancha meaning conceptual proliferation. These qualities, tanha, ditti and mana, or tanha, mana and ditti, <laughs> by the way, that, that, um, that little piece about whether it's just the, 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 the gaha as the uh, in that order, uh, craving, conceit, and views, and then the papancha dhammas. That was something Ajahn Pasna was particularly keen. He said, "So well, could we just sort of, just sort of um, put them together and call it one thing?" He said, "No, no, no. It's really different. It's really different. It's not the same thing." So he and I went back and forth a little bit on that. <laughs> and I said, "Well, I mean, come on, Ajahn. I mean, it's, it's, well, oh, no, it needs to be explained because it's not the same thing." And I said, "Okay, well, let's put it down. I'll make it as clear as I can." But uh, I think most people will think that tanha, mana, and ditti are pretty much the same as tanha, ditti, and mana. Said, no, no, it's not the same. It's not the same. <laughs> so, so uh, it was a fa it was a fantastic experience um, living together with him and, and collaborating because uh, uh, when uh, you're working together with someone and you, you look at a situation, you go, "Well, of course, let's go left," and the other person go, "No, no, we need to go right." <laughs> Oh, it's interesting. And then uh, sort of bouncing ideas off each other. And so I can remember the, the conversations we, we had about this a little bit. And, uh, and I was just so, so surprised. No, oh, it's really different. And so where my mind, it said, well, that's pretty much the same thing. And to him, it was like, no, 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 it's really different. 
It's really different. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, he, so he grew up in Canada. And so in Canada, where, where he lives, there was you know, the, a lot of ice-based sports. So for him, the most interesting sport in the Olympics is, the, well, first of all, the Winter Olympics are interesting. Summer Olympics are not. <laughs> you know, it's mostly ice and snow in northern Manitoba. And curling is really interesting. You know, you put the, you know, sliding along the big, uh, big round stones on the ice. So he, as a Canadian from northern Manitoba, would be really interested in the curling in the Winter Olympics. And any other kind of sport, apart from ice hockey, was completely <laughs> uninteresting. Where you know, I grew up in England, and uh, the, the, you know, the, most of those icy sports were developed up in Scotland, which, have, even though it's only a few hundred miles away, is psychologically a long, long way away from southern England. <laughs> so it would be very interesting living together with him that... Uh, <clears throat> he just he went, when the Winter Olympics were on, then you know, the curling would be of serious interest. Where I would find like no uh, no relationship to it at all. Whereas to him, it would be very fascinating. At the other end of the scale, um, again living in northern Manitoba, there's not a lot of flowers. So, um, <clears throat> and I grew up in a family of gardeners. So, um, <clears throat> so. Uh, uh, Springtime in Amravati, in, in Abayagiri, uh, one of the lay people living there, Debbie would say, oh, yeah, well, the daffodils are out. And, uh, and Ajahn Pasna would say, daffodils? What are they? The, the, the yellow ones, Ajahn. Oh. Oh, I didn't notice. <laughs> so he, because they were not sort of in his consciousness. There's... They wouldn't categorize flowers in, in any particular way. It's just like, oh, you, you see them once in a while and they don't last long. That's it. So he wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, be familiar enough to even know the names of them. But you don't know what a daffodil is? He gives you, the, gives you that look of like, well, why should I? <laughs> Duh. Yeah. They, they don't grow in Manitoba. You know, so no, no, no uh, daffodil bulb would last the winter, so you don't see them. Similarly, on his 50th birthday, we, we went out to um, so, uh, one of the people in the local group out on the coast at uh, Fort Bragg took us out in some sea kayaks. And uh, <clears throat> I didn't realize that Ajahn Pasana had never been to the beach, never really been to the sea. And Manitoba is, it's, it's, uh, apart from um, Hudson Bay, <laughs> which is not exactly seaside, uh, you've know, got polar bears there. Um, the, he, uh, he'd never really spent any time at, uh, on the seashore so we're going along in the kayaks and we'd go past some rocks and he said what are, the, what are those kind of funny little lumpy bits on the rocks and said, oh, lumpy bits lumpy. those little kind of pyramid things those are barnacles Ajahn. barnacles what are they they're, they're little shellfish oh, really <laughs> they're little shellfish are they oh. he'd never seen a, a barnacle he'd never he'd never seen a starfish all kinds of things that you kind of, you grow up going to the to the seaside as a kid in this country because you're never far away, and it, uh, it was a whole sort of revelation of what what you find at the uh, at the sea because he, he was not familiar with it. So, the uh, that's a long commentary on this <laughs> this particular passage, but it was very interesting going through this whole book. What were the passages that jumped out to me and said, "Oh, this is really interesting. You've got to have that in there." And, 
and uh, and uh, and uh, um, other ones that he was very familiar with, and said, "Oh no, look, this this is really important. You've got to make uh, an emphasis on this." Like, oh really? I've never even seen that before. And uh, there, interesting enough, there was nothing that we disagreed on in the whole four hundred pages. That was uh, good to know. But uh, it was uh, it was really uh, very. Because it took ten years to put this whole book together, so it was a very illuminating process. And so, so I said, "So how how is it that the Panchadamas and the Gaha are different from each other?" And he'd say, "Wow!" <laughs> and he he walked me through it. Said, oh yeah, right. That does that that is different. It's not quite the same. Okay. And so there was a, a learning process going on between the, the the two of us as the the, the book was being hatched. So the gaha, tanha, mana, and ditti, craving, conceit, and views, and the papanchadamas are uh, tanha, ditti, and mana. Craving, uh, craving, views, and conceit. It's non-commutative. They're different in the. They, it doesn't work the same in the same order. Anyway, uh, either way, these qualities are the root causes of conceptual proliferation and random stories about Canada and curling and <laughs> barnacles and such like. The random un and unruly chattering of the thinking mind. For the Buddha's advice on how best to deal with this particular condition, the Madhupindika Sutta, which is number 18 in the Middle Length Discourses, is the finest resource. There is also a very helpful and practical exp explication of this and related teachings in Concept and Reality, a book by Bhikkhu Nyanananda, published by the Buddhist Publication Society. So I will leave it there. So any particular questions or thoughts on that? Yes, Agnes. Um, um, in terms of uh, mind being born, um, you used an example of uh, a sound meditation. Mm -hmm. uh, is it primarily a um, reception or a registering of the sound is still also being born? Like mind being born into the sound? Not really. Uh, uh, I would say that, that uh, in terms of the dependent origination, you have that the first so two parts of it is uh, so setting up the subject-object duality, and then you have the the process of perception and feeling. So from salayatana uh, pasavedana, the six senses, contact, and, and feeling, um, that the the mind can be fully attentive to that and and not be um, creating any kind of um, dukkha, any kind of, uh, of uh, stressing, any kind of, of real duality from that. That there, there's hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. It's when the, oh, can't they learn to close the door properly? <laughs> that the mind is born into that when the, when the Vedana um, conditions tanha, when that, that bridge is crossed from feeling into, into craving. And as it happens very, very fast, but the more mindfulness and wisdom there is, the more there is, uh, like in the Bahia Sutta, they're just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, cognizing. And that the mind is not making a, a self in here or a world out there. 
out of it, but it's just there's an acute and clear attentiveness to the the field of experience. But then still being a perceiver and, and a conceiver of the world, because the perceiver perceives that there is a sound, it doesn't make a story, or the, the mind doesn't make a story out of it. Well, the, the, there's the, the degree to which there is a perceiver, there's still some degree of dukkha being created. And so the, the less there is uh, any um, buying into that subject, object, a, a perceiver here and a world out there, that to the, the degree to which there's a, a me, a me, the a perceiver and a world that's being perceived, then that's still a degree of dukkha. And then the more that the mind buys into that and gets lost in judgments, then the more the dukkha intensifies. But it, it's a it's a it's a subtler kind of, of dukkha, but it's still a, a, a dukkha of a. I said, I am is a conceiving, it's a tumor, it's a, any kind of, even the uh, I am watching my mind. I'm experienced. I'm at peace. I'm yeah. I'm uh, liberated. I'm without clinging. That uh, it's a subtle kind of dukkha, but it's still a, 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 a there's a little whirlpool of <laughs> of dukkha in there. Yes. Um, you mentioned that the mind is the Yeah, th- I thank you for picking. I, I, when I was reading it through earlier, that I, I, I picked up on that kind of a theme, but I forgot to amplify it. But it does. It it it's uh, the, her reflections afterwards, saying and realizing this, then it encourages me not to do anything that's harmful. But that conceiving of something as, uh, I mean, like you have so much conflict in the world now, like conceiving someone as the enemy, a foreigner, or that, uh, or that they belong to that religion. And then that conceiving creates that uh, unskillful relationship, or conceiving some person as desirable. I'm going to chase after that, that person because I want them. And that 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 conceiving uh, forms a basis for unskillful conduct. And also, it, it, it seems it's a kind of—it's um, a very useful way to think about the whole thing about anatta, because you can get very lost in thinking. Uh, there's something wrong with perceiving things, or that there's there's uh, there's something you have to not be. <laughs> um, but actually, the, the uh, it, it seems to me that the the, um, the problem or the, the 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 thing which is the disease is simply that you are you are um, setting yourself against something, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. and that ju- just in that setting yourself against. Because you're taking a position on something, you can you can well you can be do behave in an unethical way. Yeah, and it's also in the Madhu Pindika Sutta, the the Buddha he uses that uh, that that papancha that um, the conceptual proliferation 
says because of that and this is the cause of why people take up weapons and cudgels and, and uh, is the cause of all kinds of arguments and strife in the world and, there's the, and it comes from that me here, the world there that the creating that, that kind of division Coming back to what I have asked earlier, when, so what is the difference then that Tathagata and Arahant can have perception? Yes. So. Well, they, their their perceptions arise. They don't. There isn't a being there that's having them. Yeah. So, so the Buddha sees his and. And the, 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 the way the mind holds it and creates a, a self, a, a me, the perceiver, and the separate from that world out there. And speaking of the world out there, time has flown by once more. <laughs> <laughs>